Hey, hey, tree huggers. Welcome back. Today's topic? Picky eating. Picky eating. And mealtime. And mealtime, yes. And some feeding challenges, whatever they may look like for you. We hope to clear some things up, maybe give you some terminology, talk about what it could look like in your child, maybe some underlying issues you might want to check out. And then we're going to end with some strategies, things to avoid and things to remember. Sounds perfect. Okay, sounds good. Let's enter with a few terms, just to clarify. Very fancy terminology. Mm -hmm. In case you're having any challenges at home and you've heard any of these uh, terms, or if you've been to the doctor and asked some questions and you've heard some of these terms, just a quick rundown of what they are. What does dysphagia mean? (laughs) I love it when she does it. Interview format. (laughs) Dysphagia is basically a fancy word for difficulty swallowing. There can be two different types. Well, actually three. There can be oral dysphagia, which can mean that it's challenging to keep things in your mouth, manipulate foods in your mouth, transfer liquids from the front to the back or solids as well. There can be pharyngeal dysphagia, which means it's difficult for uh, your larynx to elevate, your vocal cords to close in the right time and protect your airway. And you can have oropharyngeal dysphagia, which means you have challenges with both. So that is more of a medical condition. If you have any signs of something called aspiration. What might those be? I'm going to tell you what they are. Okay. Those things are definitely things that you need to talk about with your physician. So signs of aspiration would be coughing or choking, would be um, excessive throat clearing, face turning red, uh, vocal quality a little wet. Any kind of fever that you're popping after eating. Eyes watering. Eyes watering is a big one. Uh, Breath holding even or any kind of struggle that you can see on their face is something that I would be concerned about. And we would want to investigate anything that has to do with aspiration or dysphagia before we just consider something picky eating. Now, of course, like any other thing we're going to talk about, an evaluation for the etiology is going to be very important. But this is a super important one because you need to to make the uh, distinction. The other one thing I wanted to mention is a swallow study is different than swallow therapy. So a swallow study can be called a modified barium swallow or perhaps a video fluoroscopic. No. No, that is not (laughs) what it's called. Fluoroscopic swallow study. So a VFSS or an MBS. You might hear those terms. Uh, The swallow study is an x-ray, essentially, of your swallow, where you have different consistencies of barium, and they take a a dynamic x-ray, a moving x-ray, as your child swallows it, and they watch how it gets manipulated in the mouth and then how it's swallowed, and they make sure that there's no aspiration or something called penetration. Penetration means it goes into the laryngeal vestibule, but does not go down into the lungs. Mm -hmm. Is that too much information? That feels good? Okay. It's a lot. It's a lot of information, but those terms are really important. Uh, rewind it if you need to hear it again. But we're going to talk about <laughs> picky eating, mm-hmm. which is when those medical conditions have been ruled out, essentially, or if it's part of the issue, like I said, you, you're seeking help from your physician. But you have that child that looks like what, Terry? Aha. A child with picky eating might be the child who refuses certain textures of food, certain entire categories of food. Um, has a difficult time being at the dinner table when certain smells of food are around. They might be the kiddo who doesn't like their food touching. Um, they might also simply present as being afraid to eat. Mm-hmm. Um, they might have, and that's a big one, I mm, think, because I, I feel like when kids come here, 
um, you know, parents have been, especially if, if all the medical concerns have been ruled out mm-hmm. and they just are treated more like a behavioral issue, mm-hmm. which we've talked about in the past, trying to look at that underlying message the behavior is sending, but it often is fear and, mm-hmm. and scared to eat because they could have had some mm-hmm. kind of earlier issue, which we'll talk about in a moment. So it can be fear. Uh, it can also present as sort of anxiety. It could also present as anger, um, really trying to control things and get into what might be called a food jag, meaning they're eating only very specific foods, right down to specific brands of, say, a macaroni and cheese or a hot dog or Mm -hmm. or a chicken nugget. If you feel like you're making special meals. Mm -hmm. Very limited in what they want to eat. So that's oftentimes what picky eating looks like. So then what we need to do is take a look at, as Stacy was saying, making sure that there's no aspiration or, or signs of dysphagia. Take a look at some other causes then of what might be at the root of why we're presenting as picky eaters. Mm-hmm. And first and foremost, too, you want to look at their history mm-hmm. respiratorily and feeding-wise. How did they feed when they were a baby? Did they have any challenges with latching? Did they have any challenges with gaining weight and growth? Um, did they have croup or pneumonia or were hospitalized and had some kind of breathing issue? Now, breathing issues are important to know because sometimes establishing a suck-swallow-breathe when they're infants or just having um, some difficulty coordinating the breathing and the swallowing together can cause future fear. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Another uh, thing in the history that you might want to take a look at is a history of reflux. Mm-hmm. A big one. Mm-hmm. So if you have a history of reflux or you have a history of actually choking on something, those two can evoke the fear. So with reflux, it might be, I don't want to eat because I know that that might cause reflux. And they might not know what reflux is. Of course, it might mm-hmm. be more like they have pain after they eat. And what, what we notice with infants with reflux is a head turn, mm-hmm. almost like they're trying to escape the pain. Mm-hmm. You'll see them swallow, and then you'll see them lengthen their neck and turn away, almost like they're trying to turn away from that pain stimulus. Mm-hmm. So Along that same lines, potentially we want to take a look at some food sensitivities, uh, intolerances, or food allergies, because there's such a significant connection between that and the sense of of discomfort after eating. Mm -hmm. So you can work with your pediatrician or your naturopath to figure out what if there are any of those sensitivities. So. Outside the concept of your history of of swallowing and latching and reflux and choking, then from an OT perspective, we want to take a look at their overall posture. So if you need to have a good sense of proximal stability before you can have some good mobility. So let's think about just your core strength. You need to be able to sit up and have that strength within your core to sit up and Sometimes what can happen is kiddos have a sort of slouched posture and their head might be tipped back just a little bit. Now, if you all try to tip your head back just a teeny tiny bit and try to swallow, it's very difficult. Versus sitting up tall, having your head in a neutral position, then swallow you can. So we want to take a look at what their overall posture with their core and their neck is doing with regard to how that facilitates the ability to have a swallow, a safe and appropriate swallow. Another thing we want to take a look at is actually the ability to um, feed feed themselves. So that is from a fine motor perspective, being able to grasp the food, grasp the fork, that hand-to-eye coordination. Visually, are they able to see what's going on? Sometimes kiddos who have challenges with convergence or sort of looking at things up close or things as they're coming in, 
just that visual of, of food coming towards their mouth can cause some fear. We also want to look at things from a tactile perspective. We can take a look at tactile, the tactile system from uh, externally with the, the skin. Do they not like the way something feels on their hands or on their face and that causes them to not want to engage with the food? That could be something. And it could also potentially be um, within the mouth itself, how certain textures feel. You want to talk about sure the do. motor components of oral motor? Yeah. yeah. So you don't have to necessarily have a diagnosis of oral dysphagia to have challenges with uh, motor stability within the mouth. So just like Terry was talking about a hierarchy of stability and support, you want to think about three key areas for oral motor stability, which starts with the jaw, then to the lips, and then to the tongue. So those three areas or systems, if you will, need to be able to have appropriate gradation, which is a big fancy word for stability in different heights uh, from the jaw. And then from the lips, they need to be able to protrude and retract appropriately to be able to withdraw from the spoon, to be able to have what they call lip competence, where your lips are closed and you can establish nasal breathing. And then your tongue needs to be able to uh, essentially move the food from the front to the back and kind of it kind of undulates from the front to the back where you see like a wave-like motion and not surprisingly that wave-like motion hits the spots for T and D in the front of your mouth for example uh, the speech sound of an SH or an R in the middle of your mouth and then like K and G in the back of your mouth so sometimes our kids who have a hard time with feeding might also have some articulation issues so jaw, lips, and tongue need to be able to move together to be able to manipulate textures and move them posteriorly for safe swallowing. Excellent. I thought you'd like that. Mm -hmm. I was waiting. <laughs> All right, let's move on to some strategies and things to avoid and things to do or remember instead. Mm -hmm. Now, just like everything that we talk about within our podcast, if you come to therapy, things will be very specific to your child. Mm -hmm. However, on the podcast, our strategies that we give will be much more general. So Exactly. And so, like we said, and we're going to state one more time with this one, just because eating and feeding and swallowing is so important to be medically handled as well. Make sure you're discussing these challenges with your, your physician, should you be having any of them. Mm -hmm. Yes. So the number one thing to avoid if you were, when you are working on picky eating challenges would be the concept of distraction. Hmm, what do you mean by that, Terry? That means that I do not want to, that means I want the child to be engaged in the process of eating. I do not want, say, a television or an iPad or a toy or something to take their vision and attention away from the food and then shove something in their mouth. Correct. Because think about what we talked about earlier. What is the response for a picky eater emotionally? And it's basically fear and anxiety. Mm -hmm. So if you're offering some distraction, like Terry said, not fully engaging them in the process, and then you're slipping a bite in, you're not fooling the system. You're not encouraging the system to think differently about food and to feel differently about it. You're basically adding more fear. Mm -hmm. And our main goal is to help provide this sense of safety and protection from a neurophysiological level now, if you listen to our previous podcast, we did an excellent explanation of brain in the palm of the hand, looking at that overall sense of safety and protection, and that's what we're going for with feeding as mm -hmm. well. And that PDF is located under the Anxiety Podcast on our website. Mm -hmm. So as we think about safety, I want you to think about safety within that postural system as well. So we want to make sure that they have, are supported posturally. 
I want you to think about as an adult, if you were to sit on a tall bar stool, what's the very first thing that you do? Order a drink. Correct. I think that's funny. Someone actually did say that in one of my talks once. <laughs> I know. That's why I said it. It's true. <laughs> However, that's actually, not appropriate for this podcast. No, that's not what we're suggesting. What I'm suggesting is when you sit up on a, a high surface, the first thing that you do is your feet search for that bar. They, mm-hmm. they search for something to give you that postural stability. We want that for our kiddos too. So we don't want their feet sort of dangling because when the feet dangle and you don't feel supported, you are going to be working harder to hold yourself up. And thinking about what Terry's talking about with postural support, if it's harder to hold yourself up, if you have any of those challenges in the fine, fine motor department, which is the oral motor system, then you're really going to have a hard time finding your jaw. You're going to have a hard time chewing with that rotary chew and, and moving that food from the, the front to the back with those smaller muscles. Mm-hmm. And if we're talking about our younger kiddos um, who might need a, a high chair or a something to support themselves that way, you want to take a look at the position of their pelvis. If their pelvis is tipped forward, that could facilitate more of a a C and a rounding of the back of the spine, which then causes them to have to jut their neck backwards even more. And again, we talked just a moment ago about how that negatively influences your swallow. If you're looking for something, shout out to a, a product that I really enjoy. It's called the Upseat. Um, you can find it on Amazon or just Google search the Upseat. And it looks like another product that's out there on the market, but what it does is it puts the pelvis in a just right position so that you get this nice trunk extension and then your head can be in the just right position for swallowing. And what ages is that Upseat good for, Tara? You know, I would say when, it, when someone's first starting to sit up, depending on their abilities, six months, eight months, up to until you can sort of still fit in it. Depending on your size, a couple of years maybe? Great. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Uh, another thing to avoid would be sippy cups, specifically in the back seat or roaming around mm-hmm. your house. Um, the reason we don't want to do that, again, going back to that postural support, going back to that oral motor precision sippy cups, we want them to be specific, and we have specific kinds that we recommend. Uh, we basically want it to be put the jaw, lips, and tongue into that nice, um, more mature-like pattern where you're retrieving with the lips and and drawing back with your tongue, but not necessarily suckling Mm -hmm. on one of the spouts that they often come with. Uh, Pacifiers, using those as kind of a holdover in between uh, meals, because again, pacifiers really post-infancy were not necessarily supportive of, considering that it gets in the way of that oral motor development, no matter if they're marked that they're not that way or that they're orthodontic in some nature. And also grazing. So when you're giving snacks in the back seat, when you're allowing them to have a lot of snacks throughout the day, cutting down on their hunger, those are definitely things that we need to avoid because instead we would like to do what? We would like to have nice set routines um, and in a process that the child can be a part of. So whether that is mealtime together as a family, whether that is involving the child within the process of meal preparation, even as as young as possible. Mm -hmm. We did a podcast a while back on chores and having kids be a part of things. This would be a, this is a wonderful example, whether it's helping with set the table, pouring the drinks, getting something out of the refrigerator. You're using a lot of fine motor tasks and motor planning and sequencing and then they can be a part of that process which is very very helpful 
And I'll say just as a personal anecdote, my own son, who had a history of some food sensitivities and some early reflux between the ages of you know birth to a year, did later manifest as a rather picky eater as a toddler. Mm-hmm. And so now he's 12, and I would say the biggest thing we did was really involve him in the food. When Now we Google recipes together, we make new things, and now I'd say he's one of my more adventurous guys because he likes to be in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. And part of using um, the, that sort of set routine in the process, let's talk about making sure that what we're offering are kid-sized portions Mm -hmm. and using kid-friendly utensils. Um, So they don't need a a grown-up size knife or a grown-up size fork. We need something that is manageable for their little hands um, and, and plates and bowls that are also helpful. Sometimes you can put down some dice them or this uh, sort of like the rug gripper stuff so that the bowls don't slip and slide all over. There's also some cups and plates that help sort of stick to the surface so that they're not moving over. That can be helpful as kids develop the ability to use the two hands together. Mm -hmm. Anytime you can have them serve themselves a Mm -hmm. portion size. Um, to give them, again, that sense of power and control around the meal versus a meal being served to them, maybe on, like Terry said, an adult-sized plate with an adult-sized scoop. We don't necessarily need to do that, especially when we're trying new things. It's okay for them to take, you know, two peas instead Mm -hmm. of having a quarter of a cup. Mm -hmm. And it's okay for them to take it out of the bowl. Or maybe they serve everyone else and they help you with service. Or maybe you do mealtimes family style where you put things in bowls and it's expected that everyone reaches in and gets their own portion size. Mm -hmm. And then one more thing to think about uh, in terms of things to avoid, and that would be to go with their food checks, meaning (laughs) really diving in to, okay, you only like this brand of frozen pizza. It has to be cooked only in the toaster oven or those types of things where you're actually narrowing, narrowing, narrowing even further what it is that they will eat. if you come to therapy, what we can do is help you throughout that process. And without giving too much information, Stace, tell us a little more about Well, there is a process that's called food chaining. They talk about it a lot online, and it is something that should be likely guided just because it's mm-hmm. really challenging for you to figure out how to get from A to Z at times. And I think online, I even looked it up a little bit, it can be a little oversimplified Mm -hmm. just because it's not necessarily as easy as it looks to go from like chicken nuggets to grilled fish. And sometimes there's big jumps and there might only be four steps in the food chain. So maybe first you do chicken nuggets and then you try a different shape of nugget and then you try a different brand of nugget and then you move to grilled chicken. And then you move from grilled chicken to grilled fish, but it's the same shape and size as the previous grilled chicken filet. That's kind of like with the bow on it, really neat and easy and clean. It doesn't necessarily always work like that considering fish has a super strong odor compared Mm -hmm. to chicken. And so you really want to work one variable at a time and map out uh, that child's interests. So we like to look at, you know, what foods do they like? What foods do they not like? And we take the ones that are just okay and we try to make some kind of chain that makes sense. But at the same time, we're taking into account that overall etiology. As Terry has uh, spoken about a number of times, we'll be looking at underlying neurosensory motor responses and we'll be looking at their oral motor function and be looking at what really can be hindering them from handling those things and then we move you know understanding that etiology we can move through the chaining maybe a little bit more easy with less pain for the parent mm-hmm. and as parents just being aware of some of the different uh, components of the food that you are eating so looking at color and size and texture and smell um those that's also it's important to become aware of right and you know you could offer them some dips things they like if they are really into ketchup it might look super gross to you to put the corn and ketchup but that's okay you know Mm -hmm. so you can give them sort of 
uh, an, an empowering flavor. You know, I'm not a, a proponent of dipping everything in ranch, but if you had to, <laughs> you had to add a little bit at a time, start to take it away, maybe make some homemade ranch, maybe make that part of the process so you can make things a little healthier and get them involved to see that food doesn't have to be scary and we can differentiate it here and there. Excellent. Well, I got two excellence on this podcast. <laughs> I'm really excited about my performance today. Very nice. So we will put a link to the Upsy in the show notes on our website. We'll also have a handout for you with some of this general information. Yeah. And I think uh, I think that's it. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye-bye. Bye.